I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and cognitive behavioral therapist, Anthony Rayo. His new book is The Power of Agency, The Seven Principles to Conquer Obstacles, Make Effective Decisions, and Create a Life on Your Own Terms. There's a silent epidemic that's raging America, one that's lurking below the headlines, our near constant state of anxiety. According to WHO, which is the World Health Organization, the United States is the most anxious nation on earth, with at least one in five people currently diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. As individuals, we've lost our agency, the ability to deal with stress and act as an effective agent for ourselves. Anthony Rayo, PhD, distills 50 years of clinical fieldwork, cutting-edge research, and more than 100 in-depth interviews into accessible techniques and tools that will create agency and build our confidence. For over 20 years, he was a pediatric psychologist at Boston Children's Hospital and an instructor at Harvard Medical School. He's now in private practice and has been featured Chicago Tribune, Boston Globe, New Yorker Magazine, New York Times, and many more. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Nice to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Catherine. Well, I have to say, I think those statistics are not surprising to me because I would say that most people in my environment, uh, sometimes maybe including myself, are anxious on any one day that anxiety seems to pervade our culture. Um, And you say the reason for that is because we've lost our agency. Let's start with what what does that mean, we've lost our agency? Agency is one of those words that, you know, we think we know what it means. We're hearing it bubble up more and more. Um, you know, we think of an ad agency. We think of sports stars as having agents uh, that look out for their best interests. Um, agency has actually been a term that's been studied and bantered about mostly in academia, but until now, it's not been defined or brought in for, for the rest of us to, to understand. And it, and it turns out that agency, the most simple way of looking at it is you need to act as an effective agent for yourself, which means you get your mind, your body, and your emotions all in balance so that you can think clearly, get the clutter out, and that leads you to making better choices. Uh, We've developed uh, seven principles after studying this in people with high agency that any of us can use certain behaviors, ways of thinking, to, to quickly reclaim the agency. What is interesting is when you have your agency back, Everyone has it. We're born with the capacity. We can teach it to our kids. But when you have agency, your confidence is high. You aren't worried, scared, and you have a hard time not being focused on the things that matter. We found that inverse relationship. The more that you have your agency, your anxiety declines. And given that we're in an epidemic of anxiety, it couldn't be more important. Anthony, what about, what's the difference between agency and meditation? There are many techniques, mind-body types of activities that we engage in, all good. But what we found is that most of the clients that we work with, either in a clinical setting or in our consulting work that involves people in their businesses, that the stress kept mounting and they were you know, rushing off to do yoga and Tai Chi and we're taking mindfulness courses and, and it's all great. We, we often recommend them throughout parts of the book. But what we found is that it wasn't enough. We weren't getting to sort of a 
deeper root of what the causes were, and that people were in a way just sort of you know putting a putting a brace on a on a sprain, if you will. So most of what we do when we're stressed, when we feel anxiety, is we we sometimes reach for food, <laughs> we sometimes maybe do the right thing and get outside and move, maybe we stretch. Um, but, but often we, we, we get more sedentary, we stay in our heads, the stress builds up, and, and we don't think of a, of a system of ways that, that we could sort of like take charge ourselves. We're sort of just sort of putting a Band-Aid on it too often. All right, so we're not getting to the root of the problem. We're just putting a Band-Aid on it. But we, we're treating the symptoms but not actually treating the cause. So let's start with that. You say, how do we do that? What do we, what do we do? I mean, we, yes, we start getting anxious. Maybe it helps, as you say, to exercise. It certainly doesn't help to overeat. But uh, so we try to nurture ourselves in different ways. Doesn't really work because we're not getting at the root of the problem. So start from we feel anxious. We feel overwhelmed. We feel stressed out. How do we incorporate this agency into our everyday lives? Yeah, great question because people already know, hey, I've got to shut down those screens. I've got, to, I've got to get moving more. But again, we'll do a little bit deeper dive here. So first thing I tell people is we've got our first three principles we call the behavioral principles. They're easier to do. We have access to them at any time. In fact, they're ones that children are able to learn. Um, and the first thing you do is you've got to have greater body awareness. And this is where a lot of those mind-body techniques and mindfulness come into play. Throughout the book, we talk about stopping, pausing, and just checking in on your body. Your body will let you know. Often the signals are already too high. Adrenaline is already there. Cortisol shortly right there behind it building up. And in many ways, damage is done, and it's affecting our thinking. So first thing is we ask people to, to just stop and take moments and just do a quick reflection. How is my body doing? As people get better at that, they know I've got to get up. I've got to get up from this screen. I've got to shut down my device. I've got to control the stimulation getting in my head because it all starts there with what you let into your head. That's the first principle. The second one is thinking a lot about who we spend time with. We call that associate selectively. And that means that the people we're around, they really do affect our moods. There's a lot of research on this that shows just being with people who are upbeat, optimistic, versus people who are maybe pessimistic, maybe they're sad, maybe they're stressed. We actually pick up, like a virus, if you will, those emotions, and they begin to increase in ourselves. So we think about, how much time am I spending here, also by myself, to have time to reflect? How much time do I spend here? Can I avoid that time, bring better people into my life so that I have greater control of the emotional systems? And the final one is move which is really the unsung hero um, of, I think, our seven practices, because we all hear like, okay, yeah, right, you, know, you want me to go to the gym, right, and exercise. No. You think about every opportunity in your day to move in even the smallest, most natural ways, particularly when you're stressed, don't sit. So here's one of the big takeaways. Don't sit when you're stressed. And what do we do? We sit, we lie down, the emotions built because we're signaling our brain we may be helpless. We're trapped. And there's research on this on learned helplessness. Teach your body, I can escape. I can take my mind. I can go right to the window. I can look outside. I can go outside for a moment, maybe on a balcony or on a deck or go down the stairs of my business just to sort of say, hey, I, I can get out of my head for a moment and I won't let this adrenaline and cortisol build up. 
So those three are our go-tos, and they really serve as the foundation for the other ones, which are a little bit higher level and involve how we think. I think one of the things that people get stuck in, and I take the last one, you say move, um, many of us get... Well, I, I know I feel anxious, I know I should do something, but they have this sort of all or nothing. If moving means I have to go to the gym and work out for an hour, or it means I have to walk six miles, or I, these sort of have tos. And I think what you're saying is you can just go to the window and look out and see if there's anything out there that interests you, or moving doesn't have to be this sort of overall, this monumental kind of, of exercise that you have to do. I think I, I see people running and jumping all the time, trying to get rid of that anxiety and that, I say running and jumping, but um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's the picture I get, and you don't have to do that. No, no, not at all. In fact, you might, if you enjoy that, terrific. If you don't, don't do it. <laughs> and then look for all the other ways in which your body is designed and wants to move. You know, um, I, I know people who tell me, you know, frankly, um, a little light cleaning and I get around the house, I put on some music, actually lifts my spirits. Um, I, uh, cooking uh, can lift my spirits. Um, some little time in a, in a garden um, or, or, or tending to some plants or, um, you know, I can knit, I can draw, I can sing, I can dance, I can perform. You know, the body is made to move in all different ways. And what you want to do is signal it constantly that, hey, you're alive, you have agency, you have choices, and you can move it in directions that are pleasing to you and move them in directions that fulfill like what you'd like to do. Yes, you don't want another have to <laughs> on your list. Um, you know, classic way that we Americans like to solve problems is to double down to do something dramatic, but then we just added yet another thing that, that, that frankly uh, uh, makes us feel worse. Yeah, and I think Americans. I think this is true. One of the other things that we, I think we tend to do, as you said, cooking can be relaxing, and and I think traditionally it always has. But now cooking has become so competitive. I mean, if you're a cook, then you have to be the best cook, and there are all kinds of competitions. You can watch them on television. You can compete with your friends. So there's always that sort of added competitiveness that we get into as a culture. If we just want to cook, or we just want to dance, or we just want to sing, don't get sucked into that. Um, I, I think that maybe that's something that we as a culture tend to do. Relax. You can do the kind of cooking you want, or as I said before, or as you said, actually, the kind of moving that you want to do, um, or dancing or singing. Um, one of the things that comes to mind, I, what my three-and-a-half-year-old grandson, I he when he comes to visit, we run around the apartment singing and dancing and I wouldn't want anybody to see us doing it but it is very relaxing <laughs> and uh, I don't have to go out and take dancing lessons so uh, that's one of my examples I guess. Yeah, absolutely um, you know when you look at how children played for example you know going back before the 1980s um, they were mostly outdoors in spontaneous free, unstructured, often unsupervised play. And they were more creative. They used their imaginations. They didn't need expensive toys, but they certainly were not on screens, which didn't arrive until later. You know, we keep coming back to that very first principle. It's why we put it there. You know, you had mentioned, for example, cooking and singing and dancing, some of our most uh, basic um, uh, human talents, spontaneous well, 
the reason we think that they have to be measured and we'll get a trophy for them is that on screens, through some sort of way, we're not controlling stimuli enough. When we're seeing other people do them, they're being judged. Think of all those TV shows and all those platforms about being the best. So we're spending all these hours looking at other people get measured. And it, it, it robs us of that sort of unique ability to be able to say, well, I, I just want to move my body. I, I, I want to I see what my voice, I want to find my voice. And I want to be able to move freely when the urge happens. So, so again, there's something about if you can decrease the amount of time you're on devices and screens. We all have reasons why we need to be on them today. You know, they're a part of life. We accept that now. We find that people with higher agency know, know how to just sort of like chop that out of their life, or they know how to shut that phone off, put it in another room. They, they know that they need a break when they listen to those signals in their body. They, so the more they cut down on those messages coming to them about their productivity, how competitive the world is, they naturally may want to cook more. They naturally may find themselves just singing. Uh, because, again, they're not getting those constant messages from the technology that are, that are really taking us off the path that, that we want or need for ourselves. So and if you want to dance, don't watch Dancing with the Stars. Just dance, right? Turn it off exactly. and, and enjoy yourself. But uh, it doesn't at all, I mean, as a psychologist and, and I'm, I guess speaking as a social worker, we're talking about boundaries. Aren't we creating boundaries that work for us so that we can exercise this agency that we have, control over ourselves? We sort of, these boundaries have gotten weak in terms of, uh, as you say in the beginning, I think, who we associate with, uh, we, we tend to get sort of taken, all, taken for a ride and we don't create our own healthy boundaries. Can you talk to us about that? I, I think you've, you've put your finger on it. Um, the boundaries we've lost sort of that keep us protected and really speak to our individuality. They, they've really been shredded in some respects. Um, if anything, there's so many messages coming in. Again, it's, we're in an information age with lots of messaging and lots of technology. You know, by the time, you know, we hit our heads on our pillows to sleep, I hope soundly tonight, it, we would have had about 5,000 messages in one way or another pitched <laughs> to us. They, they all get in and they, and they do, they take us to somebody else's. So, so there's a boundary violation almost every time we're on our devices or screens or in the information age. And not protecting who we are. I, I ask people to really think about slowing their thinking down. What we find is that we are so competitive. We are so anxious at this point. The people we're around make us very anxious. The places we go to make us anxious. Our brain goes into faster and faster thinking, which is really more emotional thinking, not emotional good, but more tension, anxiety on high alert. So again, you take those pauses, you check in on your body, you do some basic breathing, you walk around and use movement, and you become more and more consciously aware of who you are. Where do I stop and start, and where does the world stop and start, so that I can, I can, I can really protect that. Even when we're supposedly taking vacations, that becomes a competitive issue. Where you went, have you been to the right place, did you do the right thing, All of, and then are you going to show your pictures on Instagram or talk about it on Facebook? Did you have the best trip ever, a better trip, a better vacation, a better relaxing time than your friends or your colleagues? Uh, I mean, that, I mean, I think that's an example of uh, when we're supposed to be sort of calming down and 
going where we want to go and doing it with whomever we want or, pe- or people who make us feel calm and comfortable. We're not even doing that. And we have conscious choices through all that, don't we? But we find ourselves in front of people or devices or what we're reading or a billboard that goes by or something where there's sort of a message that goes exactly to the heart of what you said. You know, in our language, we talk about a bucket list, which is all about achievement. Um, you know, we know what we're doing to kids today. We're, we're, we're measuring them on everything and their stress levels are through the roof. College kids, high school kids, teenagers showing some of the highest rates of mental illness issues than we've ever seen or measured. Uh, so, so we know that we're really driving them uh, to the brink with this sense of what you're talking about, this, this hyper-competition. I'm reminded of being in a beautiful island many years back before there were devices and just having the misfortune of at the breakfast area running into uh, another wonderful couple, nice people, but who were hyper-competitive about everything they did on the island that day before, and they were always trying to outdo us. And I remember thinking, like, I just, I can't enjoy this experience if I have their beliefs, their ways of viewing the world in my head. So it was a matter of, hey, you know, go to breakfast a little later or earlier, um, prepare myself a little bit mentally, cognitively for, all right, that's, that's just how they are. And they're lovely people, but I don't want that getting into my head because it was, it was driving up my competition. Lovely people, but not lovely people for you. Uh, maybe no. lovely people for somebody else, right? But then you had to spend your energy trying to avoid going to breakfast at the same time that they were going to also. I associated selectively. I made a decision. <laughs> I'm just not going to, you know, I will just have to sort of curtail and change that. Now, it sounds, I mean, this what we've been talking about is very optimistic when we do have control over our lives, making choices, uh, creating our own boundaries. But actually what you're saying is, in the, you know, I mean, I assume that, and maybe I shouldn't, are you the only one who is sort of honing in on this kind of work? Because we're getting worse, not better, as you say in your book. We are getting more anxious. We are not taking control of our agency. Um, and we really don't understand the role that agency plays in our work and our home life. So uh, how do we reverse it, I guess? How do we reverse this whole downward spiral well, yes, we, we are, as far as we know, the only people who have taken this robust concept that's been mostly academic, you know, philosophers, psychologists, sociologists, even uh, behavioral economics has been, has been using the term, but, but nobody's taken it and, and made it into actionable things that you can do. So in these seven principles, three of which are about the behaviors that are within our ability to change, there are then four more that are about how we think, and they're about getting control over our beliefs and our emotions, a little bit more of like what cognitive psychology is about and some of the therapies that I'm sure you've done know about. Um, But a lot of it's also about checking in your intuition. You know, we have wonderful inner wisdom that we are running around so much that we don't listen to. We're so anxious, in fact, that the signals that come from our bodies that tell us, hey, this feels uncomfortable. This person's making me feel a little off. I should probably listen to that. Instead, we tend to just, if you will, motor on. And there's different types of intuition we learned while writing the book that are accessible to us. Three types, in fact, that we talk about because they, they do have nice research behind them. And then it really does come down to that last 
of the seven principles. And really all of these are in service, we believe, of that last one. If you really want agency, if you want control over your life, you want to be in command, it comes down to the many decisions you make every day, particularly the big high stakes decisions you make in your life. And and we outline um, six steps, for example. Um, and we did this by learning from people who are senior detectives, uh, people who are um, superior court judges, um, experts in making uh, medical decisions. How do they make their decisions compared to how do we do it? And we distilled it down. And and just a few takeaways from that is it was very surprising. They They used a framework. They all had already in their mind, hey, if I'm facing a big decision, I'm not just going to show up, for example, to the car lot and look around and see what happens. I'm not just going to go to the open house. I'm just not going to go visit that college. You know, I'm just not going to go on the dating app. They actually had in their, in their minds a way they were going to approach this. They first slowed everything down. They got to a quiet spot to do good deliberation. They were open to new ways of learning. They wanted to have enough information to finally make a decision. When they made a decision, what was interesting is they weren't afraid. They, they said, you know, I don't need 100% to make a decision. Otherwise, we just sort of obsess over and over and get stuck in our own minds. Instead, what they did was they said, you know what, about, we call it the 80-20 rule, about 80%, all right, I'm going to go ahead and make this decision. I can make a mid-course correction, perhaps. Perhaps I can then have other doors open up to me that allows me to go on to the next thing. This is what we saw were the differences in people who had lower anxiety, higher confidence, and fit on these seven principles of agency, which, which are teachable and easy to learn. Excellent example. With only a few minutes left, pick out one or maybe two if we have time. You mentioned somebody who's a physician who has to make uh, medical decisions or a judge. Can you give us like a real life example of someone doing that and specifically how they do it? Yeah, it's a great, a great place to, to bring it to real life. And I think about uh, someone I just spoke with the other day um, who went through a really tough divorce and um, has been, you know, licking his wounds, so to speak, and had to move um, and um, discovered that, you know, people were calling him to tell him that, you know, they had seen um, his ex with somebody new or that um, they had seen them in the neighborhood and, and, and those people felt compelled to, to call and tell this person. This person is also, he's also going on Facebook and has found himself obsessed and worrying about what happened because he was, he was just left without any, any you know, real explanation. Um, so we talked a lot about it first, the idea of control stimuli and associate selectively. But then, you know, I wanted him to do some more mind-body work. So, and, and particularly um, us guys are, are closed down often to these incredibly powerful techniques of deep breathing, uh, meditation. Um, so I'm sort of coaching him a little bit on using those in very bulleted ways so he can get access again to slowing his thinking down. Great example. We have a minute left. So give us some, a couple websites that we or how many are that you want to give us uh, for information about the book and about you. Oh, that's great. Um, actually, just powerofagency.com, www.powerofagency.com. And on that, you'll be able to find me, my co-author, Dr. Paul Knapper, um, and you'll also uh, find that there you could take one of the smaller uh, 
tests, we developed a, an inventory and tested it out. It's got great psychometric properties. We're starting to use it in groups. Um, and, the, and you can take just the control stimuli one, just as an example. It's in the book. People can hand score it themselves if they have the book. But we do it for them and give them some feedback. There's also some resources there, shows you some video clips as well as some articles and podcasts. And um, it gets people thinking more and more about, like, how do these seven things apply to me? In fact, you know, great. looking down now the list of all the topics. Got to say goodbye. Uh, oh, great, sorry. Yeah, great book. No, The Power of Agency, <laughs> The Seven Principles to Conquer Obstacles, Make Effective Decisions, and Create, create a Life on Your Own Terms. Anthony Rayo, Ph.D. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great information. Oh, thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 